Hello and welcome to With Faith in Mind. I'm Dan Hummel, today's host and the Director of University Engagement at Upper House. This episode is part of our series on Christian education at the crossroads, and we're welcoming Sarah Soltis to the show. Today we're exploring the student experience in Christian higher education. I came across Sarah when she wrote an essay in Plow Quarterly late last year titled, Do Universities Educate? It was a fascinating piece. It's a mix of first-person storytelling and more philosophical suggestions about education as formation. And we'll get into uh, what that phrase uh, might even mean. And we'll get into the article and bigger topic here in just a minute, but I do want to introduce Sarah a little more. Sarah is currently a senior studying English at Grove City College. She is editor-in-chief of Grove City's Kogatari magazine and managing editor of the Front Porch Republic. And she's published her work in Plow, The American Conservative, Ecstasis Magazine, and many other places. So Sarah, before jumping into the particular topic of your article and the journey you went on to uh, arrive at Grove City College, just wanted to get a, uh, give our audience a, just a little sense of who you are, um, where you come from. So uh, what's one part of your upbringing that uh, is really notable, maybe for this conversation, or just some part of, of your, um, your early life that you'd want to share with the audience? Yeah. Um, well, I think I, well, I'm sure we'll get to this later, but I grew up in a, in a strong Christian home and I went to a, a classical Christian school. Um, and I have memories like very early on of, you know, praying in class with my, with my kindergarten class and my kindergarten mm-hmm. teacher praying with us. Um, so that's one, one kind of thing that maybe clues, clues you into some of who I am, that that's how I was shaped and raised. Um, I remember actually when my kindergartner, my kindergarten teacher prayed one maybe Thursday, just some random day, um, she prayed that we would all come to know Jesus with a personal relationship. Um, and I remember walking away from school that day, just very kind of curious about what that might mean. Um, and that kind of started my own, my own journey towards those questions. But yeah, so that's a little bit of a background glance, mm-hmm. I guess, at, um, at my upbringing. And you went to um, Christian school basically from kindergarten up through uh, high school. Is that right? Yeah, I did. Yeah, K through twelve, classical Christian school, and yeah, I realized that I'm I'm very blessed to be able to do that because that's a rare thing for people to be able to do and to afford to do. Um, but I, I've been really blessed. Yeah, and this will be the first time I'll um, I'm going to insert myself into this conversation a little more than than usual um, because I want to draw a contrast, Sarah, between your story and my own. So I also grew up in a very strong Christian home. We were a missionary family, and so I actually spent a number of years in Germany as a as a kid. I actually went to kindergarten in Germany, you know, a, a real kindergarten, yeah. um, and I was homeschooled it, until uh, we came back, and then I had one year in Christian school, second grade. We were at the sort of church that had sent us on mission. But from third grade on, I was in public schools, um, mostly in Colorado Springs, uh, Colorado, where I spent a lot of my uh, middle school, all my middle school and high school years. So um, in some ways, we have the the same shared uh, Christian home. Um, In other ways, I had a much different, I think, uh, educational experience than you. Uh, Certainly, the, the, the high school I was in was 
massive. It was about 2,500 students, um, which I believe is as big as Grove City College uh, around there. Um, and yeah, as, is, yeah. yeah, yeah. And as, as, um, you talk about, uh, fellowship being so key to, to education, um, you know, scale is one of those things that sort of works against fellowship, right? When, it, when you have big box, uh, big class, uh, high school or college, uh, fellowship looks differently. So, um, uh, yeah, thanks for sharing about, uh, where you, where you came from. I wanted to jump into the, to the article itself, which, uh, I commend people to read called do universities educate? Um, Sarah, I wanted to just start with asking, why did you decide to write your story in such a sort of public forum as an article? Right. Yeah. So I guess kind of the immediate answer is um, that I was an intern at Plow this past summer. So I was, Mm -hmm. I wrote the essay for Plow because I was working at Plow and kind of thinking in this Plow environment, there was a cohort of us interns who were all Christian college age kids and we all had just very different experiences with education. And we had happened to be talking a lot about education um, during our internship there. So that kind of got me thinking about Plow specifically for, for sharing my story. But in a, in a broader sense, kind of beyond that, I, I wrote it because I had been thinking for a while about um, how I had been shaped growing up and how my formation, how my upbringing affected my educational um, aims and my goals in mm. in going first to a secular college and then transferring to Grove City. So I guess all that to say, I I just been wrestling with those questions of of shaping and uh, desires of, for education for a while, um, and I knew that these are questions that people are asking on a broader scale as well. And I think just in, in sharing my own story with friends and um, people at various, like at Grove City and around where I live, people have been touched by it. So I mm-hmm. I felt that, I mean, maybe sharing this would kind of contribute to that broader conversation about what is education for and how should Christians think about education in such a um, tense climate often. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, you mentioned this in the article a few times, but, uh, you know, you went to college right when COVID hit. Uh, and so there's so many people asking questions, uh, in the last few years in particular about what is the maybe worth of education in a financial sense, but also, uh, what are people getting out of it? What's the value of education, uh, for, uh, you know, people's lives, people's careers. Um, so I think you're also hitting on a question that uh, has a particular resonance for your story, but I think a lot of people are asking. I know people here at UW are also trying to think about that. I know the university itself is trying to articulate the value of what they offer um, in in ways that resonate with a post-COVID, you know, uh, 18-year-olds uh, and, and going forward. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wonder if we could... Uh, if you could just give give us sort of a sense of as you were thinking of college uh, as a high schooler, um, what were you looking for? And and I know that changed over time, but sort of how were you anticipating uh, college and and sort of evaluating what the best option was when you were you know in high school later in high school? Right. So when I was in high school, like I said, I had K through twelve at a classical Christian school. Um, I was pretty set 
as a senior on getting out of the Christian bubble, um, I was probably the last person in my class who would have wanted to go to a Christian college. Um, so I was, I was very set on well-known, um, colleges, prestigious colleges that could give me, uh, some sort of liberal arts education because I still wanted the liberal arts training. I wanted to study English. Um, so I looked at nearby colleges, um, near where I'm from in Maryland that could, uh, give me some sort of liberal arts training and also would look good, um, down the line on a resume and also had, um, opportunities for things like study abroad and different special programs. Um, and William and Mary, I toured there as a senior and I was just very delighted with the um, the campus and what it seemed like their focuses were. I loved their their focus on history or their apparent focus on history uh, right there in Williamsburg. Um, and they definitely kind of checked the boxes in my mind, at least for somewhat prestigious, um, also nearby and accessible for me. Uh, and so I, I, I was really thinking I wouldn't have put it in these terms maybe, but I was thinking about prestige and what would look good and also what would give me good tools for uh, doing whatever it might be that I wanted to do in the world of, of literature and literary studies. Was there, uh, you mentioned English as sort of what you wanted to study. Is that just something you were interested in going all the way back or, or was that something you um, came to sort of later in, in your high school? Yeah, I think I, I've always been interested in literature. I really knew that I wanted to study literature sometime in the middle of high school when we were actually reading um, Virgil's Aeneid in Latin in my Latin class and talking about somewhat similar things in my literature class. And that's just, a, I mean, that that sort of integration is a testament to the school that I grew up at. Um, but seeing those kind of overlaps and thinking about the canon and the the great books um, in that way when I was 15, 16, um, that kind of highlighted to me that I wanted to study literature. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I won't draw this contrast too often, but that, that is not what my high school English experience was like. So that sounds uh, mm-hmm. quite ideal, so particularly the integration of the language training with um, with the literature that, um, that opens up uh, imagination in students, I think, that often isn't even awakened in a lot of students that don't have that opportunity. Um, I wonder, as you were talking about uh, your your thought process of why you wanted to go William and Mary, were there other people speaking into the process? Did you, I mean, I assume your parents were uh, somewhat involved, but uh, was there anyone else you were seeking advice from, or was it really sort of on you to to figure out where you wanted to go? Yeah, my parents were definitely involved. Um, I had a family friend who had done college admissions counseling who was helping me out with with various parts of my applications. Um, And she was a fan of William & Mary as well. I, yeah, had some teachers and parents that I knew in my school community uh, who were supportive in that direction of looking for these sorts of well-known, uh, well-respected liberal arts-esque colleges that were outside of the Christian Christian thought sphere, I guess. Mm-hmm. So 
I, 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 it was a lot of my own initiative. It wasn't that someone told me like, you need to go out to a secular school. That was kind of my own desire. But I think all those people were supportive of that desire in me. And there definitely is a, a drive, I think, for excellence in, um, in a lot of Christian parents who send their kids to, to Christian, co- Christian school growing up. So it kind of, the idea of a, a prestigious university kind of fit with that because my parents wanted me to succeed. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, and we all kind of thought that doing this might be one way to do that. Yeah. And maybe we can uh, just talk a little more about that. So um, I, I remember feeling this too, like why you, you talked about like getting out of the, the Christian bubble or like sort of getting away from, I mean, there's part of that's just like a, probably a universal 18 year old feeling that you just want to get away from the culture you grew up in. But I think a lot of uh, Christian students go through that. Um, and I think you identified one reason right there, which is there's a sense of excellence, particularly if you're set up for that and sort of excellence in a lot of American contexts are these like really elite, often non-Christian schools. And so that's like the highest achievement you can make in terms of getting into a college. Um, so that, that might be one, uh, one reason why that's appealing. Was there, I don't know, I'm just asking you to sort of reflect it. Was there any other reason why sort of getting out of the a Christian bubble, so to speak, was appealing, um, at that time? Yeah, at that time I was probably mostly motivated by the potential future uh, success and the whole excellence factor. But I think earlier on in high school, I had, you know, that rebellious stage that every Christian teen probably has where I was questioning um, some of the just general philosophies and ideas related to the, the Christian bubble, questioning some political things that a lot of Christians in school shared. Um, so maybe that's that was a seed perhaps for the desire to to get out of the Christian bubble. But I was somewhat naturally just pushing back against these things that I had like been fed my whole life. And, mm-hmm. and I think that makes sense because I didn't yet understand like why it is so important to be in Christian community and um, how vital and life giving that can be uh, because I was, you know, 14. Um, I, <laughs> I just didn't totally get all the all the things that I had been given and the blessing that they that they all kind of comprised. So maybe that played in as well. And I think for a lot of Christian high schoolers, that does the idea that maybe maybe I need to figure out for myself what's true and I can't just accept what's been fed to me this whole time. That idea plays in for people. And I think that there's a, a natural aspect of that. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. I think there's sort of a, a fish and water situation where you don't really realize all the support systems, um, that you have in your, in your youth, um, until you don't have them. And then you suddenly realize, oh, there's a lot I really appreciate about that. Um, that context and particularly the Christian, uh, community part that is really hard to recreate at a lot of college, uh, experiences. Um, okay. Well, I, one of the, ar- uh, quotes in your article, which I love, I always love a Chesterton quote. Um, I think we all do. Um, but he has, I'll just read part of it. He says, uh, there is no education apart from some particular kind of education. There is no education that is not sectarian education. Um, and, 
uh, I want to apply that to your time at first at William and Mary, and then we'll go to Grove City. But, um, uh, yeah, when you went to William and Mary, what was the, um, now that you're looking back on it, what was the formation, the educational formation you were entering into? And particularly just what were the benefits of it and then the downsides of it as you sort of experienced it that first year on campus? Right. I think um, I definitely did when I came there. I had a, a sense that I was entering into an excellent educational sphere. Um, and that was one of kind of my first responses. After a little while, though, that did wear off. I think the benefit was that it was still a good name and it still um, mm. still was promised to be a successful name for me. But when I, yeah, when I was at William and Mary, I, I found that a lot of the classes I was in were just not very deep. Um, some of that had to do with the fact that a lot of them were, you know, freshman classes and it was COVID. And so, so much was limited, but a lot of our discussions were very kind of horizontal sphere discussions. And what I mean by that is, um, we're in a entry level English class, a freshman English class, and we're reading the Tempest and we talk about, we're not really talking about, um, you know, justice or truth or any of these kind of maybe vertical ideas that I mm had grown up thinking about we were just talking about what does this tell us about uh colonialism and what does this tell us about gender theory and uh what does this say about shakespeare's um ideas about women and the other um and those are those are interesting questions those are in some some ways in some conversations important it's important that we live on a horizontal sphere as well as a vertical one but i think i was just struck from my first couple of classes at how shallow and how yeah horizontal a lot of a lot of those conversations were um at the same at the same time one of the benefits was that it was a a, a rigorous in a sense school in that I was you know reading a lot and everyone there was pretty committed um to to learning but it wasn't rigorous in the sense of depth. And that was, that was the main downside. It was, it was one dimensional. And I think the depth that I eventually realized that I was longing for was the depth specifically given by Christian education um, and given by learning in a community where everyone accepts that there is, um, there is a underlying like unity to, to our lives. And there's a um, there's a real, real quality uh, to goodness and truth and these things that we talk about. There's there's something there um, instead of just like our own kind of wishes or desires. There's there's something actually to be said for that vertical plane of our existence. When when you um, you know came to these texts with that vertical those questions about the virtues or, or sort of these vertical uh, questions, as you call them, did you find that uh, maybe not in the class proper, but maybe w w were other students interested in those and it just wasn't being talked about in class? Were professors interested in that and they just didn't bring it up in class or was it, or was it sort of a lack of interest in those things across the board? 
Yeah, I from my I mean, I was only there for one year. So from mm-hmm. my limited classes, I think it might have interested some of the professors in some way, but their primary uh, interest was, you know, more of the horizontal one dimensional stuff, societal um, questions. I think other students probably were interested in that. Not a lot of people necessarily voiced mm-hmm. that. I did find, and I'm sure we'll talk about this later more, but I found in some of the Christian fellowships that I was, or Christian communities that I was engaged in, like a um, Bible study in the church, and um, I was involved in Reformed University Fellowship. And so some of those Christians that I met had encountered similar Quandry, quandaries, I guess, in their mm-hmm. in their own um, majors, where they wanted to be talking about, you know, justice, maybe, or other other things, and they weren't they weren't really talking about them in, in the full way that they desired to. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, you, you mentioned um, uh, sort of some ministries you were part of or, or churches. Um, yeah, talk about. It sounds like there might have been uh, more. Uh, stimulation there, I guess, uh, in terms of intellectual stimulation. But um, yeah, how did you uh, think about your spiritual life and your your spiritual maturity and growth um, during that year that you were on campus? Right. Well, I was, yeah, very blessed to be able to to join or not join, but attend a a local church and get involved with uh, college ministry from from the get-go though it was very difficult with covid because mm-hmm. even just a lot of my engagements with the the college ministry that i was a part of were very um virtual like there was not a lot of in-person yeah. engagement allowed by the school um but it i think especially being able to go to church uh in person every week was was something that really sustained me through the first year because so much of so much of the rest of my life was virtual And those people kind of understood the difficulty and isolation that I was experiencing. Um, But of course, I didn't really know them all that well. And so I think outside of my engagement with Christians at at church and in limited ways with RUF, I personally just felt very um, starved for spiritual nourishment and very isolated in my faith, even though I was still you know, praying and trying to, uh, connect with the Lord. I, I just, I felt like in a pretty kind of despairing, isolated place. And a lot of that I think was from the whole, uh, just the whole emotional kind of state that most people my age had in COVID. It was very depressing for a lot of us. Um, I don't, I don't know all the factors that went into that. But uh, yeah, I definitely felt spiritually, spiritually starved. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I've been referencing my own experience. Uh, like I'm, I'm not even that young, so I don't know why I keep, uh, I'm not that old either, but uh, it, it was uh, 15 years ago that I was in college. Um, but it, totally different than anyone who went through college in, in 2020, 2021. Um, really hard to, uh, I mean, I obviously observed it from the outside. I work on a campus, but, um, uh, uh, particularly the, the isolation, I guess, of, of being mostly a virtual, 
uh, seems very difficult uh, to to grasp unless you uh, experience that yourself. Um, I I want to um, get to your thinking around why uh, uh, Grove City was a good alternative, um, but. Uh, I did want to just ask, uh, as you were in your article, um, you make the distinction between you're thinking about wanting to move on from William Mary to something more Christian between, uh, is this just like a COVID reaction or is there something deeper that is not, uh, sitting well? Um, mm-hmm. so how did you think through that? Uh, how did you sort of try to discern, uh, what was wrong and if actually moving would fix it or if. Um, or if that really wasn't uh, the solution that that was needed. Yeah, so I think there are a couple things at play there, but one of them was that I knew that Christian colleges had a less intense response to to the COVID mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. thing. So I I knew particularly about Grove City because I had friends who went there that they um, they didn't have they most of the time didn't have online classes and that, you know, they didn't have to wear masks outside, maybe just in the building, but it was just definitely a diminished response to COVID than, than my own experience out of Virginia state school. Um, Mm -hmm. And some of that is size. Some of that is naturally like Christian colleges are more conservative. And so there's more of a, um, there was just less of a a need for the big heavy response. and I had heard also from from my friend who was at who was beginning at Grove City the same time that I was beginning at William and Mary that she was very much enjoying it even though COVID kind of dampened some of her experience she she still loved it uh, and of course that that was striking because most of my friends and myself included really did not like much at all about our about our freshman years at mm-hmm. at school um, but I also I knew that it was more than COVID that that was kind of moving me in a different direction because my main frustration wasn't really COVID. It was that lack of depth that I was talking about earlier. Um, and I think COVID played into that because COVID revealed some of the weaknesses, I think, in the modern university in that mm. um, there's just not, there wasn't, so many there wasn't really anything for the modern university to give or do for all the people who were frankly suffering i think under just all the jumps and changes that covid brought um there's no it it can't hold the kind of personal communal um healing or conversations needed i think to um speak to and restore some of the frustrations that people were feeling. Um, so I, so I guess what I'm trying to say is I, I knew that it was partly COVID, but I also knew that COVID was a sign of, of underlying things and underlying, uh, other underlying issues that I didn't like in the, in the modern university. And a large part of it was the the lack of room for, for depth and lack of room for, um, fellowship. Um, mm-hmm. I think some of that, some of that has to do with the fact that it, it was a secular school. Some of it also has to do with, like I said, this kind of modern, um, 
university mindset where school isn't really about fellowship and it's not about like becoming a person. Um, it's about gaining certain skills and preparing yourself for success. So there's a lot at play there, but mm-hmm. hopefully that kind of answers some of my thinking about it. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And that resonates with um, some of the COVID response I saw here at UW-Madison, which is a massive public university. There's about 35,000 undergrads that go here. And so, so much of the response to COVID in particular was very, uh, and I don't want to, I mean, it was a very difficult situation, so I'm, I'm not um, even trying to cast blame, but, you know, very, a lot of bureaucratic uh, response, a lot of, so much just attention on sort of how are we going to keep the classes going, how are people going to get credit for their classes, that uh, a lot of the more uh, human interactions and a lot of the more humanistic concerns uh, were secondary, at least in 2020. And, you know, I think there's a, there's been a massive fallout from that. There's been a massive response. One was a push as quickly as possible here at UW to get back to in-person uh, as, as soon, because there was a clear sense that the students didn't like it. And, and the fact, may the faculty didn't like it either, though some faculty uh, wanted to stay uh, remote as, as long as possible. And then there's this, this massive um, mental health crisis that uh, we talk a lot about here on campus. The university has expanded its student uh, life initiatives and its you know, counselors and all that kind of stuff as much as it can, and it still can't meet all the demand. That's been its response uh, from a you know, public uh, secular university has been to you know, try to offer as much counseling, as much support. But we know just because of where we are, the work that we do, that there's been interest by the university as well in thinking about spirituality, as they call it, as a dimension to student life and the resilience that students can build at at university but that's been a really new insight by the university in the last like year or so that maybe there's something more that we need to be doing than um than what we have been doing so i think you see all different types of responses and i think you've identified a couple of the key ones from your your perspective um i wonder when when you got to grove city um what did you notice? And this is, you know, just drawing from your article. What did you notice was different? Like, what what was so alluring about going there? And then when you got there, uh, what was so much better? I guess than than your first year. Yeah, I think the short answer is community, and that's definitely a overused word, especially in college and college admissions. Everyone wants to tell you that they have a great community, um, but I. I got there and I was immediately welcomed. Um, I, you know, transferring is never, never easy Mm. and transfers often have a difficult time. And I knew that, but when I came, there were other transfers who had similar experiences. Um, and even beyond the transfers, like the English department had this wonderful welcome tea that they had for all the new English majors. Um, and yeah, people, people were just so, so ready to welcome me and to hear about my story and my experience. Um, And I think a lot of that goes back to the Christian aspect. Um, Also the fact that it is is a smaller school, it's a lot easier to have some of that community. I, I knew before going that the community would be strong and fellowship there was, was a strong uh, feature because 
uh, as I wrote about in my article, I had a literature teacher actually from high school who had gone there and she met with me one day when I was thinking about the the switch and we just had this this great conversation partly about education but also just catching up from high school um, and I think that conversation really kind of imaged to me the possibilities of Christian fellowship that I had maybe forgotten in my year um, at at William and Mary uh, and maybe I didn't realize when I was growing up in high school um, but yeah I think because it changes when you're a kid to when you're a young adult in college like the richness of Christian community is it's I think it's an equal richness but when you're older it's just it's different and you're a lot more cognizant maybe of uh, how being surrounded by Christian people um, and people who have similar ideas about, you know, truth, beauty, and goodness and similar understandings that truth, beauty, and goodness exist, um, how being surrounded by those people can affect your life and specifically studying and school and education and this whole project of literature, especially. You um, you talk in the article um, about, as you just mentioned, the importance of fellowship and community to formation uh, and, and particularly educational formation. Can you just walk us through sort of conceptually, um, and I'm thinking here of where you talk about soul formation and this sort of tradition of thinking about this. Um, uh, yeah, what were the insights you gleaned from just thinking about that connection between community and uh, education? Right. So I, as I wrote about, I grew up in this classical sphere where I understood um, just kind of by the atmosphere that education is not about particular skills so much as it is about like shaping a person and forming um, a human being in, in a proper way. And so I just kind of had that in the back of my mind as I approached college and my life. And it wasn't a super conscious idea, but making the switch did make me think about it a lot more. Um, right. But I, I think, you know, education as, as formation just comes from this idea that um, like people are not, computers, people are people and they're, they're shaped in a variety of ways and learning, um, especially learning the liberal arts, like learning about history and philosophy and theology and the classical understanding of, um, like what, what an education was, was kind of those liberal arts. Um, those things make a person more not more complete in a way like they wouldn't be complete otherwise but they they make a human and shape a human into who um they are meant to be or into who it can be um so yeah just this kind of notion that education is not for specific things but for the person and for shaping the person and the idea that then uh, taking that with community, um, the idea that 
you can't really do that devoid. You can't make a person devoid of other people. Like if education is about making a person and making a person, especially who can uh, serve community and serve others, um, you, you can't do that just kind of with mechanistic, um, computerized like forms of learning, which is I think where, where COVID comes in a little bit. But mm-hmm. yeah, so I don't know if that, that makes sense. That was kind of a long-winded answer. But I think, yeah, just that idea of what education is for um, plays in and, of course, the like traditional sense of of education as a liberal arts formation, especially in the Christian tradition where like universities began with people wanting to integrate and understand um, the world through a Christian perspective and like, mm-hmm. be formed by that, not necessarily go out and invent something because of that, but to be formed as, as humans and as Christians by their understanding of, you know, history, philosophy, theology, literature, those sorts of things. Right. And in service, um, in service of God, uh, th- that's sort of the ultimate right. end of, of the education. Yeah. I think just to get, uh, somewhat philosophical for a second, I think, um, you know, a lot of the Western, uh, philosophical tradition, particularly since the enlightenment has seen the individual as the, if you think of like Rousseau and like the state of nature, like it's an, it's an individual person who has all this freedom. Um, and so if that's your idea of, of sort of what education, you know, education sort of meet the ideal state of nature type person, it's going to be a very individualized, uh, activity. And it's about sort of you mastering as uh, you and your brain and your faculties mastering this area of knowledge. And I think the Christian tradition offers something a little different that, um, either starts with, um, the Trinity, which is, uh, you know, three persons in, uh, one in, in God. And so there's a relational component right there at the beginning, or it starts with Adam who immediately, um, uh, needs a partner and, and has Eve. And so there's, and then God is sort of the third, uh, third person in that, uh, triangle as well. And so either, either way you started on the Christian, in the Christian tradition, you're talking about uh, uh, living in community and learning in community. I think you, you mentioned this a few times in the article about how important relationships are to to learning. That um, you talk about mechanistic, but depersonalized um, ways of education. I think of a lot of my. I went to two large state schools for my education. Um, most of the classes were at least uh, fifty people, um, and many of them were like over a hundred. And so there's not even the ability for a professor to get to know everybody uh, or to field all the questions. And in fact, you're just not really encouraged to ask that many questions because there's just too much to get through and there's too many people in the room to sort of accommodate all that. So um, I think what you sort of um, are, are landing on here at, at Grove City is, is that truth that the, the relationship part of education, it, we, we often take it for granted, but it's so crucial um, to how we learn and, 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 and not just learn in like a knowledge way, but like learn in a, it actually forms us type way. Yeah, I think, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I've, I've found that it's a lot easier to, to form those relationships and to ask questions uh, of, of professors, of other students, even um, at, at a smaller school where that kind of thing is, is encouraged. Um, mm. 
yeah, also on the relationship front, like I talk about this in my article, but just the fact that this surprised me so much when I first came to Grove City, but the fact that I could like be invited to speak to a professor outside of class about things that weren't really class, like the fact that my professors wanted to get to know me and wanted me to get to know their kids and wanted me to uh, come over to their house um, or meet their dog. Things like that were just so surprising to me. Mm. And I, I am really blessed um, because that's like, even at some Christian schools, that's not the case where you have professors who really care about, about the students um, and care about getting to know the students. But I, Mm -hmm. yeah, because of, God's grace, I guess I've I've been able to um, do that with a handful of professors at Grove City. Yeah, um, yeah, and I th- I think for uh, for my experience, the the place where that happened was actually grad school because grad school gets you in a much smaller, even in a big school, gets you in a much smaller mm-hmm. cohort where, and you have a much more intense relationship with faculty with professors because they're sort of mentoring you and and other things, but. Um, but that you, you have to go to grad school for that at a public university. You're not going to get that nearly mm-hmm. as often um, in the undergrad experience. Um, you mentioned it here just briefly about sort of the way that the professors welcomed you into um, other parts of their life and, and wanted to know about uh, your life. If you could just summarize in the classroom, what does a good professor at a Christian college do that isn't happening at a, in a non-Christian classroom? I think the main difference between a Christian professor in a Christian classroom and a non-Christian professor uh, in a secular classroom is what I was talking about earlier with the um, horizontal and the vertical mm-hmm. plane, I guess. And that I think those are, I mean, that has they're kind of horizontal, horizontal and vertical planes of being i suppose but also of like every endeavor and study and literature especially i think those kinds of two cross sections are there and the christian professor is a lot more likely in my experience to speak to those vertical questions um about the you know the transcendental virtues truth beauty and goodness and also specifically about christ um, and I found, yeah, in my literature classes, there's almost always a way to integrate discussion about the word when we're talking about, you know, the words of a particular text. And it's it's not often forced in my experience with Christian professors. It doesn't it's not like this kind of thing that's hewn on to our discussions about literature, but so much of literature, especially in uh, like the canon, the mm-hmm. the uh, tradition tradition of the great books, um, really does address some of these themes and questions of our faith, and also addresses Christ uh, specifically. So I think, yeah, the specific integration of faith is an obvious one, but also just generally those vertical questions it is a difference. Um, also kind of integration with that that canon or the great books tradition is I found more common at a Christian school because while that kind of terminology is still present in lots of secular 
colleges, I think it's it's becoming more rare in your run of the mill, like major um, secular state college to talk about the great books or to talk about the Western canon uh, or really like the canon at all. Um, so alluding to some of those, yeah, books that have shaped the Western civilization specifically is not as of interest for, um, for I think, secular professors in a lot of schools, unless they have a specific liberal arts focus. Yeah, and there, there's a few different reasons you could attribute to that. I mean, one is sort of a um, a move away from even talking about a, a particular canon, right, and saying right. that 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 was a that's not the right way to even frame how to how to engage literature. Um, and that's happening, uh, and that, that that's definitely present. But I think another one, I just think of a place like UW, or I went, I did my undergrad at Colorado State University. Uh, both of them, th they're they truly are a university in the literal sense, which is they have like hundreds of majors that you can major in. Mm -hmm. They they try to encapsulate like the universe of of knowledge, and so many of those, so many of the ones that students pick now. I think of here at UW, the the largest major is computer science. And it's grown significantly in the last decade. There's just so much emphasis on training toward particular career paths that mean that the curriculum, um, what's going to get dropped from the curriculum? Well, it's going to be seemingly less technical uh, classes in the liberal in the liberal arts or the humanities, where it's not there's not a clear sense of why a computer science major should ever be contemplating the nature of justice. <laughs> that that's I mean I think we should, and I'm sure you think the same thing. But in terms of if you have limited time and, uh, and and you need to sort of usher through hundreds of people through this major in any given year, that's what's going to drop by the wayside. And so um, there, there's this larger sort of uh, question of what is the point of higher education and how much of it is to train uh, in particular fields and how much of it is to give this holistic, even, even this space, this four-year space to, to explore some of these big questions. I think... That's something that even in the gap between when I went to school and when you went to school, um, or you're going to school, uh, that's changed a bit. I definitely came in and I majored in philosophy and history. So I was uh, one of those annoying people who wanted to just take four years to explore everything. But uh, I still felt licensed to do that in a way that I think um, both the university and a lot of students who are paying a lot of money to go to these schools also feel like I really need to make these four years count in terms of career development. And uh, what's going to be lost is reading the Aenid um, for a semester. You know, I, I need to get another computer science course under my belt or something like that. I don't know. Maybe I'm being uh, a little uh, a little too simplistic, but I think that's a big a big uh, part of it that is harder to actually address than that cultural argument about like what's in the canon or right. um, because it, it, it's it's sort of structural within our broader society about what the purpose of college is for. Right. Yeah, I think I think that's definitely on something. There was actually this this interesting article recently in the New Yorker called "The End of the English Major." I don't know if you guys mm. read that, but basically it's it's talking about how the English major is dying at a lot of mm. colleges, and it was specifically looking at Harvard, where I think it said there's like maybe sixty undergrad English majors, <laughs> which is is crazy because yeah. Harvard is two or three times the size of Grove City, and there's more than 60 English majors in <laughs> at Grove City. Um, and I think that attests to what you're saying, that there's just a shift away from the desire to, or the 
idea of being able to study these kind of more liberal arts fields because of because of the drive towards things like computer science and all the STEM fields. Um, And that's true. Like that's not only true at secular colleges, that's also true at Christian colleges, but for whatever reason, there are, there is still an invitation to the liberal arts at some Christian colleges and some sectors of, of those Christian colleges. And I've been, yeah, blessed to be a part of that. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I I, I remember seeing that article uh, in the New Yorker. I, as a someone who got a PhD in history, I often track the sort of the, it's the same trends in history in philosophy. Yeah. It's this just like um, pretty depressing trend in in who's majoring and um, and then the types of jobs you can get. I mean, there's mixed data on um, if you major in English history or philosophy, will you earn more over your life? I mean, I don't even like. The frame. <laughs> these questions are hard. Hard way to sort of even quantify the value of these things because I think there's more than just earning potential. Um, but often that's how these things are discussed. And even there, it's it's hard to make the case if those are the terms we're going to make cases for what should be in a university curriculum. It's hard to make the case for more history and and English. Mm-hmm. Um, um, uh, but but such so it is. Um, uh, I have two more questions for you, Sarah, and they're more uh, I guess personal. One is just curious. Um, uh, if you've, now that you're a senior and you're thinking about, I'm sure you're thinking about next, next stages. How do you, how do you think, uh, has your change, has your thinking, I don't need to know, uh, we don't need to know exactly what you're going to do next. I know that's probably what you're asked like, but has your thinking changed about uh, around that, uh, because of your experience at Grove City? I think so. I think I've shifted away from some of the prestige oriented thinking that I ended high school with. Um, and I'm, yeah, a lot more interested in like, how can I, how can I form people, whether that's as a teacher or in, in various other ways, how can I contribute to, um, this project of formation that isn't really just education, but is is so much of our lives is, is formation in a broader sense, especially as, as Christians, like, I mean, the great commission is, (laughs) impendent on on all of us and yeah so how can I thinking about that in a career lens or in a vocation lens more than about like what what will make me look good and what will get me money from the world or success from the world um yeah and yeah Grove City has allowed that kind of question those kinds of questions about about formation to hmm. blossom i guess in my mind um and i've also yeah i gotten to know people who are not really interested in uh making a lot of money or even yeah doing well respected things but more interested in you know forming a family and um contributing to their local community and serving the local church those those things as like honorable endeavors i knew that growing up but being at a school like grove city that's a lot more emphasized and pronounced Mm -hmm. very interesting um one last observation i'll make about um my experience at at, here at uw in particular um i was just doing a project where i was looking through some of the commercials that uw makes about itself so this is how it sort of tries to portray itself to the broader public in wisconsin and the the sort of I mean, there's all different types, and they emphasize the economic benefits of the university and everything else. 
but the one that um the, the sort of theme that repeats over and over again is this metaphor of breaking boundaries and and UW's, you know we we are where we empower you so you can break boundaries and they mean that in all different ways uh, a lot of it's around knowledge but a lot of it's around identity and other things and it made me just think that that's really the type of education that UW is trying to offer is this sort of um there's an assumed sort of uh Whiggish or progressive view of history that we're always just going to be advancing and advancing. We need to break more and more boundaries. We need to get to that next frontier on in this scientific field or, or in this political debate or whatever. And as you describe sort of how some of your uh, your uh, peers at Grove City think about, um, you know, uh, settling down, serving in a local context, that just seems so uh, underwhelming. I think to like a UW audience, it's like. No, no, no. We got to go break boundaries. This isn't about sort of producing good citizens in a like a quietist way. It's about like producing the next inventor and the next genius and stuff like that. So even there, just think about the ideals of like, what is this education for? Like, what do we hope people do with it? Um, there's a significant difference uh, between uh, your school and, and UW as well, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, last question for you. Um, and I'm putting you on the spot, but is there, uh, as an English major, um, if you could just, uh, will everyone to read one book, um, that would sort of benefit them, um, in countless ways, uh, what would be that book, maybe from the great tradition, maybe something else, but what would be the book that you sort of, um, if you could just make everyone have a copy right now uh, and read it together, what would it be? Oh man. Um, there are definitely a couple, but I think the first two that come to mind are, I'm, I'm going to say two. Um, okay. The first yeah. two that come to mind are the Aeneid, because we were talking about that earlier. And I think that is such a, such a big, a big part of our cultural heritage. Um, mm. and yeah. And I think Virgil's really interesting because a lot of his ideas about piety um and about like forming a home are somewhat parallel to ideas that would later be picked up by the christian tradition and by like medieval writers and medieval mm -hmm. philosophers um so and i i love virgil i think he's great so i think that's definitely something that everyone should read i but also perhaps in a more christian um lens i think augustine's confessions is mm a book that everyone would profit from reading. And I think it's especially of interest to some of these questions about formation and about mm -hmm. um, our faith in mind uh, because, yeah, because Augustine encounters pagan education and he, I mean, talks about how he's searching for God and he's finding God in the beautiful things of the world, but he's not actually finding God until, um, until he he really is hit with his need for God, um, mm -hmm. I think it's just a beautiful account of of how God draws us to Himself. So those two are are two recommendations. Great. Well, thank you for those. That's about a, a thousand pages for everyone to read now. Um, <laughs> and and take it slow too. I, yeah. I hate hate to sort of speed read uh, the confessions yeah. or something like that. Um, well, thank you, Sarah. Thank you for sharing your story and some of your reflections on education. It's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much. 
Thanks for joining us. If you've enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your favorite podcast app. Also, be sure to check out our upcoming events on upperhouse.org and our other podcast, Upwards, where we dig deeper into the topics our in-house guests are passionate about. With Faith in Mind is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin, hosted by Dan Hummel and John Terrell. Our executive producer and editor is Jesse Koopman. Please follow us on social media with the handle at Upper House UW.